We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're wrapping up our time together this morning in the Lord's Prayer, considering verses 12 through 15 this morning in the Lord's Prayer. We'll actually pray the prayer together in just a moment. Uh, but we've spent time thinking about what the Lord's Prayer is and why Jesus puts it right sort of smack dab in the middle of three things that he talks about. Giving, prayer, and fasting. Obviously, prayer, it makes sense to go with the prayer, but it is a step away from the way that he talks about uh, talks about these three things. These three things are, are contained here, in giving in particular at the beginning of chapter 6, prayer, and then fasting. Jesus' overarching main point here is that he wants to communicate to us what it means to do these things and practice these things as people who are righteous, as those who are being made whole and those who are being made perfect. If you look at the end of chapter 5 and verse 48, he says to his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus wants his followers to be perfect. And that when we look at that, when we see that, we think to ourselves, how in the world is that possible? Jesus is talking about wholeness. Jesus is talking about completeness. What does it mean to be complete in Christ? Um, what does it mean to, to be ongoingly being perfected, to become who we already are in, in Christ, in Christ Jesus? So this morning, as we move through the Lord's Prayer, as we get to the end of this prayer, um, we see that Jesus' primary push here is, is regarding forgiveness. We started out with our, your, our Father in Heaven, focusing on God, the giver of gifts, and then His kingdom, right? His kingdom is coming. Um, and that's his kingdom and not our kingdom. And then his will being done. His will, not our will. And then God is the source of all things. We talked about last week. God is the source of all things. He is the one through which all things come into existence. And then, therefore, everything that we need is provided for us in the day to day. So this morning we're going to look at the screen and we're going to pray the prayer together. Make this your prayer this morning as we consider the text. Look together with me at the screen, and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then this morning also we'll look at verses 14 and 15 where Jesus sort of gives a bit of commentary here on verse 12. And he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So since verse 12 and 14 and 15 go together so clearly, we're going to take those first. We're going to look at those three verses first. And then we'll kind of backtrack a little bit and look at the last verse in the prayer Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So again, it's clear in verses 12, 13, or 14, and 15 that Jesus wants to emphasize forgiveness. Jesus wants to emphasize forgiveness here. And this is not the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that forgiveness has come up. Um, if you look at the end of uh, chapter 5, you see that Jesus admonishes his followers to love their enemies. To love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, now, now your enemy might be someone that might be a little bit farther, going a little bit farther than someone who you just need to forgive. But Jesus gives us a wide range so that we know, so that we see clearly that everyone is in bounds. Everyone at all times are people that we should be forgiving if they if they wrong us. If we want to sum up what Jesus wants to pray and he wants to communicate, we would probably say something like this: We must forgive others. 
And if we fail to forgive others, we are not forgiven. Now immediately that sounds backwards to us. That sounds backwards. We said to ourselves, how is it that, how is it that we as people, uh, we forgive others and that we earn forgiveness? But that's not what Jesus is saying. We say, if I'm saved by grace through faith, then that's a gift from God, like Paul writes in Ephesians, then how can something like God's forgiveness hinge on my forgiveness? And this is why remembering what comes before is so important. We have to remember what comes before in the Sermon on the Mount and everything that Jesus has preached so far up to this point. It's a bit of a disservice that we're like in 20-some weeks in the Sermon on the Mount because really, honestly, this is meant to be preached and thought about in one sitting. But that would, we would be 25, 26 hours in or something like that. So we're not going to do that. But remembering what comes before is of vital importance when we get to this place and we start to see uh, forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. And the, the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes. It starts with pronouncements of blessing. And when we were way back then, when we were talking about that in, in May, when we think all the way back to those pronouncements of blessing, we see that God's favor comes first. That's why Jesus starts there. God's favor comes first. And part of that is, part of that is forgiveness. Forgiving our sins is part of what God is showing us, demonstrating to us in showing us his favor. And so when we see blessed are those who, we know that those are those individuals are us and that we have been forgiven. So what's one way that he's shown us favor? Again, it's forgiving our sins. Now we need to get serious. Like as a, as a body, we need to get serious about that because when we think about forgiveness, obviously we think about someone wronging another person, that person saying, hey, I'm sorry, and that other person saying, okay, I forgive you. Um, but we need to get serious about our understanding of just where we stood prior to Christ. This is of utmost importance to this conversation. I would submit to you that the reason it's difficult for us to forgive others, whether they acknowledge they've sinned against us or wronged us or not, the reason it's hard for us to forgive others or to see others um, in the light of the way that Jesus talks about them is because we don't understand where we stood prior to Christ. We don't have a depth of understanding there. We need to open up about our understanding of sin. Not only did we, not only were we, did we act sinfully prior to Christ, but we were sinful. This is our identity. This was our identity prior to Christ. We were sinners by nature, and we were sinners by choice. Prior to Christ, you didn't just swear against God. You didn't just look at a woman lustfully. You didn't just covet what your neighbor had. You didn't just murder, steal, cheat. Those weren't isolated incidents, not just what you did, but this is who you were. That was your nature. You say, well, I never did any of those things. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. If you, if you say, I've never, did, I've never done any of those things. I've never killed anyone or, or stolen or cheated on a test. It's kind of the point. You, you, you may not have done any of those things that you would consider morally wrong, by some sliding scale, but you trusted your morality to get you into heaven. Or maybe you denied God existed altogether. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You deny that God exists altogether. And in that instance, you trust your logic. You trust who you are. You trust your, the observable universe to save you. And you make yourself, in that instance, you make yourself God. 
So these things are sinful acts, but sinful acts flow out of, the Bible is clear about this, the sinful acts flow out of a sinful nature. You cannot think of sin as actions only. So prior to Christ, this is man's nature, totally sinful. Let me just give you some texts. Psalm 53, 2-3 says this, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see, that they are, uh, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul picks up on this, this idea in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 10. He's going to quote a ton of scripture here. He says this, none is, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul quotes the Old Testament at length here. He quotes Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Jeremiah 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. I think this is a pervasive idea. This idea extends all throughout the Old Testament and into the New. Paul doesn't just make this stuff up. He quotes Scripture. He's not describing people here who do bad things. He's describing bad people whose identity is in corruption, who are depraved in a radical sense. And this is prior to God's saving work in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, this is no longer describing you. But prior to Christ, this is who you were. So we have a small view of God's saving work. We have a small view of God's saving work because we have rarely grappled with what we came out of. Some of you, maybe in your past, you see a lot of garbage that happened to you, or maybe as a result of a choice that you made, and so this is a little bit easier. But for a lot of us in a conservative culture, growing up in a conservative culture, maybe church background, we don't really realize how sinful we were, how far away we were from God before he broke into our lives. Consider the debt that Jesus talks about. He's, he says, forgive us our debts, right? Verse 12, first line. And forgive us our debts. He uses financial language here. This is interesting. He uses financial language. Individuals' sins are quantifiable. So individual sins are quantifiable. You can put a value on sin. But change a person's nature, that's quite a different story. To change a person's nature... Completely different. So we need desperately, prior to Christ, we desperately needed a new nature. Think of it this way. And I, maybe this isn't going to make any sense. I don't know. I wrote this down. We'll see what happens. All right. <laughs> Say that there was a farm where dogs could live, and you could be free, and play fetch, and do all the dog things perfectly. There's a full, exposed expression of doghood could be found on this farm. Just go out and be a dog. Just do dog stuff. Dog all you want. And it was exclusively for dogs. No other dog, no other animal could participate. If you're a shark, sorry. If you're a dolphin, no way. Sea creatures, off the table. So you're a cat. 
And you're thinking to yourself, like, the fullest expression of, of animaldom, of whatever it is that I am, can be found here at this farm where all these dogs are going and having a, a wonderful time. This metaphor is breaking down a little bit. We'll, we'll get there. So you try to do dog things. Say, so I'm a cat. But I'm going to try and do dog things because I want to go to this dog farm. I want to spend time at this dog farm. This, this, this dog farm is awesome. But you're still a cat. And the dog things go on for a while, but then you just find yourself doing cat things again. Doing cat things. Because the only real solution is to become a dog. And how do you do that? How do you become a dog? As a cat, how do you become a dog? I don't know. I, I don't think it's possible. Maybe. I don't know. Science, who knows? The only way to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. Because it's the only way that you can have a new nature. That you can be changed from a corrupt, sinful human to someone who is being shaped in the image of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 5, 12 through 21. I think I needed more there. We'll work on that. We'll work on dogs and cats. Therefore, just as Paul writes this in Romans 5, 12 through 21, he sheds some light here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, but was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by, that, by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's sin nature, for death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, sin nature there, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's a new nature. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Peter says about Paul, Paul is hard to understand. Paul is hard to understand. And I read this text as I, Paul, you're hard to understand. What is Paul saying? He's saying that prior to being in Christ, you didn't just do bad things. Your nature was bad. It was corrupt. It was sinful. But in Christ, your nature can be changed from a sin nature to a righteous nature. This is the cat and dog language. You are transformed from being a cat to being a dog. And the fullness of doghood can be experienced by you. 
And this is, you don't get there by just doing dog things because you're just going to be frustrated and slip up back into captive. And we as people don't get anywhere just by doing righteous things. We must be changed. We must be transformed by the righteousness of God to do righteous things. Maybe Paul says it in this way. This is a little bit easier for us to understand. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he writes this. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin nature, paid for it on the cross, He made Him to be sin, and we are transformed from sin to righteousness. So now we have a new nature in Christ. A new nature. This is deep, this is heavy stuff. This is big stuff. But we must begin to grapple with it if we're going to understand the righteousness or the forgiveness that God demonstrates to us and the righteousness that's granted to us in Christ Jesus. We have to get here together. Do you know what the payment for sin and sin nature is? In its eternity of God's wrath, spent, separated from God in hell, that's the payment Jesus took on all of that for us on the cross. He forgave us our debts. That's what this means. He didn't just say, collect all the bad things we did and, and, and take all the bad things and just say, okay, we're going to set these aside now. He paid for them all. And not only all the bad things we did, but the bad people that we were and transformed us into righteous people. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He forgave us our debts. You ever thought about the debt that you owe God? This isn't a $2.50 candy bar at Walmart checkout line that you slip in your purse. This isn't your car loan. This isn't your mortgage. Think about the national debt. I don't know. What is the national debt? Like $20 trillion. Think about the sand on all the shores and all of the oceans in the world. Now think about the grains of sand on the planet and multiply that by $20 trillion. That's the debt that you owe God and even more than that. And he put up his son to die for you and forgave it. He wiped it clean. You had 47, I don't know what 47, you had 47 volume debtor's ledgers with your name on it, and it was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. All of these things, it is finished. It is paid for. The debt is settled, never to be brought up again. So we have to start here because of the understanding Jesus' words just stay words. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That should drive us to a place to see all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This isn't just the swear word you said when you were seven. This isn't just the, just isn't just the frustration that you expressed to a coworker this week. 
This is plucking you up out of death in the grave and setting you in a place where you were made alive. He wants his followers to forgive because they have been forgiven. Scott McKnight writes this, Jesus is teaching a kingdom perspective on how to deal with those who have sinned against us. Since the kingdom is a world of reconciliation, kingdom people are to forgive. As is the case with so much of Scripture, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. That's why Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and then gives us this commentary in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive, if you are forgiven, you will forgive. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. You cannot fail to forgive and be forgiven. You cannot hold a grudge and claim to understand forgiveness. The words, I will never forgive you, or this is unforgivable, are totally foreign to the kingdom citizen. Everything is forgivable. God proved it on the cross. And many of you here this morning, and you need to forgive. People have hurt you. People have walked all over you. People have belittled you. People have made you feel worthless. Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's your spouse. But you desperately need to forgive that person. To withhold forgiveness is to misrepresent the kingdom of heaven. To withhold forgiveness is to misrepresent the kingdom of heaven. That's what this passage talks about. It's also a lack of understanding what God has done for us in Christ. But Jesus really wants to drive home the formation of the heart that properly shows the world that the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, we're a people. We're a group of people who are pulling back the curtain and showing the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's that's one of the main points of the Sermon on the Mount. To say, look at what the kingdom of heaven is like. Look at how this is different from what the world is offering you. The world is offering you temporary happiness. This is eternal happiness. So Jesus tells his followers to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And this is the last thing that Jesus tells his followers to pray. It's the sixth of six petitions that he tells his followers to make. This is the first place our mind should go. One of the first places our mind should go is, is James 1.13. James writes this. We studied the book of James earlier this year. James writes this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this is a place where we need to really explore what Jesus is saying. We need to really think in depth of what Jesus is saying here. Just word lead is informed by the next line, deliver us. Right? He, says, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Those two things should be taken together, not separate ideas. Not that God is the actor here, not that God is the actor here in the temptation, but God is the deliverer from evil. Your Bible might say the evil one. I think Matthew wants to take us back to, to chapter four. I think he wants to go back a couple of a couple of verses to chapter four. If you remember, if you've read the book of Matthew, if you've read Matthew's gospel, you see that Jesus is tempted in, in the wilderness in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He's not tempted by God, he's tempted by Satan. And the request is made here for the protection from what Jesus endured in the wilderness in his temptation. That's what we're praying. We're praying for protection from what Jesus had to endure in the wilderness in his temptation. 
I think Paul says it. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10. He sheds light on it. This is verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 10. This sheds, lights on it, uh, sheds light on this prayer for us. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we are praying that when we find ourselves tempted by sin, that God would rescue us out of it. That we would not become enslaved to it, to this sin. That we would, not be, that we would be granted an escape from it. And that we would be able to endure it. And this is an important point, and I think this is why Jesus ends here. As a follower of Jesus, no sin has mastery over you. Right? Forgive us our debts reminds us, takes us back to the place where our sin nature, where we were ruled by sin, enslaved to sin. And then when we get to verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us into evil, this assumes that then we have received a new nature. Because no sin now has mastery over us. There is a promise here that God will give us strength to endure and escape. So we must actively pray that God would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the attacks come hard and fast, though they're oftentimes subtle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, Sometimes the attack takes the form of a false sense of security, and sometimes of ungodly doubt. But the disciple is conscious of his weakness, security, or weakness and does not expose himself unnecessarily to temptation in order to test the strength of his faith, Christians ask God not to put their puny faith to the test, but to preserve them in the hour of temptation. So, red alert, everybody. Red alert. We must be on red alert. Friends, temptation is probably isn't going to come in the form of stealing a pack of gum or that $2.50 candy bar at the checkout line, or have crazy road rage and punch that other driver. It's probably going to come in the form of dishonoring your spouse by elevating your own needs in, in front of their own. Or maybe it's trusting your bank account to provide for your needs, like we talked about last week, because God is the source of all things. Are we trusting God or are we trusting our bank account? Or maybe it comes in the form of thinking your good works will get you into heaven. Or maybe it's misplaced trust in unbelief. And forgetting God's image on a person. It's oftentimes much more subtle than we think. Much more subtle than we think. So in conclusion this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table in just a moment. And we're going to participate there together. We're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're going, to, we're going to take that together. We're going to eat together. We're going to celebrate what's promised to us in the marriage feast of the Lamb that's coming. But a couple of things that we need to recognize as we move out of this text and towards the table. Forgiveness is not just a concept to be understood. Forgiveness is not just a concept to be understood. I think this is where we as Christians get this wrong often. Because if we look, if we really examine the corners of our heart, we're going to find places where we have not forgiven those who have sinned against us. We're going to find places where we're holding on to something. Where we're holding on to a grudge. Where we're still frustrated over an action that took place maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
If we're really honest with ourselves, we would we begin to think of forgiveness just as a concept. But we could begin to drill down deep into our understanding of where we stood prior to Christ. If we begin to drill down deep into the fact that God, we were enemies of God, and yet, in His love for us, He sent His Son to die in our place to remove that debt that was infinite, to take the wrath of God on Himself. If you need to think about it like that, if you need to think about it that way, let it really shape and form our hearts into people who understand forgiveness and its deepest, most profoundest expression in Christ, we begin to pray. We must seek in prayer forgiveness and our understanding of it in order to be formed into a forgiving people. I think what you'll see on the screen behind me is forgiveness is not just a concept to be understood. It must be sought in prayer in order to be formed into forgiving people. So forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Maybe this morning there's someone in this room. Again, we mentioned it earlier. Maybe there's someone in this room that you need to forgive or you need to ask forgiveness from them. Maybe you've sinned against someone or someone has sinned against you and you need to go to that person. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to seek reconciliation here and now. Sometimes that sin is against a person who has no idea. They have no idea that they've hurt you. You need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe it's someone in this room you need to ask for forgiveness from them because of the way that you've acted towards them. Maybe that person isn't even aware, one way or the other. And sometimes that sin against another happens in our own heart, and it's never even expressed. It's never even expressed. And yet, we need to go to that person, and we need to confess a poor attitude against him or her. Maybe you need to go to that person and express that you've held a grudge for a long time and you need to forgive. And if someone has sinned against you, you need to be willing to go to that person and express that they hurt you. And then no conditions, forgive them. I don't know how that person will react. That's a common objection that happens in our mind. I don't know how this person will react. That's really not your concern. If they react poorly, forgive them for that also. Because in doing so, you're displaying what the kingdom of heaven is like a place where debts are forgiven. Remember back a few weeks ago when we got to the end of the end of Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This isn't the end. In the middle. When we were considering what, what ethics look like in the kingdom of heaven. This is related to anger. Verses 23 and 24 of Matthew chapter 5 say this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that you have, that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come, come and offer your gift. Essentially what Jesus is saying in those two verses is that if someone has something against you, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, then you should go and reconcile quickly. There's an urgency that must be necessary in reconciliation. If you're in the middle of worship, like we are right now, stand up and go and make it right. Bury the hatchet. Get a handle on it. Put it to bed. You're not disrespecting anybody. You're not disrupting anybody. 
your reconciliation with your brother or sister is in a level of urgency, needs to be accompanied by a level of urgency that Jesus demands here. And then we must pray. We must pray also, just as the Lord's Prayer says here, as Jesus recounts for us. We must pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the subtle temptations that the world offers us minute to minute, they are all opposed to what we've thought about in the Lord's Prayer. The subtle temptations that come minute to minute in our lives are all opposed to what we've just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. We are tempted to think that God is totally other and not our Father, intimately involved in all the details of the life, or flip side, we are tempted to think that God is near to us but unable to handle our daily struggles or protect us. Praying our Father in heaven forms us into a people who are resilient against these temptations. Or we are tempted to build our own kingdom, to do what we want to do, to make everything about our own little world all about us. Or we are tempted to pursue our own will, independent from God's. Or we are tempted to think that this earth is as good as it gets and praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is, is in heaven forms us into a people who are resilient against these temptations. Praying, praying uh, give us this day our daily bread forms us into a people who are resilient against the temptation to trust our fridges and our pantries and our bigger barns and our bigger houses and our bank accounts as the source of all that we need. Praying, give us this day our daily bread changes us from a people who want to find our source in anything except for God into those who find our greatest source and our need and our portion and everything that we need day to day in Him. And praying, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, forms us into a people who are resilient against the temptation to hold on to grudges, to not forgive, the very infrequently reckon with and deal with what God has saved us out of. And the follower of Jesus prays these things and is thereby formed. We have to see this prayer as a means of formation, as a way that God intends to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So again this morning, maybe you've caused hurt or or you've asked for forgiveness and that person has forgiven you, but you feel, still feel, some significant guilt. Jesus took that guilt on himself. Let the truth of the gospel wash over you this morning. In Christ, your guilt is removed. Maybe you've been heard and that person doesn't acknowledge that they've wronged you. Before we acknowledge our sin against God, He sacrificed His Son on our behalf and removed our sin, forgave us our debts as far as the east is from the west. That's as far as our sin has been removed from us. Let the truth of the gospel wash over us. In Christ, all guilt, all shame, all debts, all condemnation, they're all gone. They're all nailed to the cross. They're all obliterated. They're all dealt with. They're all completely handled. And friends, that we would understand the depth of the love of God made for us. We exalt the name of Jesus, the only way to be saved. There is no other way. 
the only way for our infinite debt to be forgiven. So before we go to the table this morning, consider with me just this last thought. In Luke 7, 36-49, Jesus has this encounter with a Pharisee. He has this encounter with a Pharisee and then a woman who is called a sinner. Jesus goes to this Pharisee's house. This Pharisee, his name is, his name is Simon. And this really sinful woman shows up. Everybody knew she was a sinner. Everybody knew she was a terrible person. Everybody got it. And this, this woman who's a sinner, she walks in and she has like she has like a mini breakdown right in front of Jesus. She's carrying some oil. She starts to cry. She washes Jesus' tears with her hair, or washes his feet with her tears in her hair. Then she pours this expensive oil onto his feet and she kisses them. And the Pharisee is like, what, what the heck? If Jesus knew who this woman was, he would end this charade. This is silliness. This is ridiculous. This woman is a terrible sinner. And so Jesus, like he often does in situations like this, just calls the dude out. He just calls this Pharisee out. And he says this. He tells him a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, and he said to her Your sins are forgiven. And those who are at the table with him begin to say among them, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The woman trusted Jesus for all that she needed. She didn't trust her, her good works. She didn't trust her ability to distinguish between sinful people and herself. She knew that she couldn't repay the debt that was owed. And her faith that Jesus could forgive her sins saved her and freed her to love and not, not to withhold. In the same way, as those who are forgiven, as those who have been forgiven more than we can ever understand, more than we could possibly grapple with or begin to imagine, we are called to freely forgive when others wrong us. And so we go to the table, and we go we turn to the table, and we celebrate the act that makes that all possible. It's only because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we can experience the forgiveness of sins.